Fable, a pastoral podcast where we discuss common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. I'm Mark. I'm Matt Miller. I'm Matt Henry. And I'm Lena. And it's my job today to tell you to like, share, and tell all your friends about this. No, that's amazing. the ending. That's the ending of the episode. Oh, then what God. are we supposed to do? Talk, talk to me. Teach me. I'm, I'm your Yoda. You. You're supposed to be telling them Comment, what to do. Give us five oh, stars. Oh, review. Check out our website for show notes. And we apologize to all Android users that for some reason you can't uh, like us. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think they can technically open up an iTunes account and do it. <laughs> I mean, they just can't do it. They can probably get an iTunes app on their phone, right? I don't know. Yeah, sure. Why not? Sure. Okay. Well, as fun as this has been, let's... Uh, well, I'm happy we're finally recording. Yes. We spent like 10 minutes talking about <laughs> our upcoming promo. Tell me about it. Oh, well, you, well, you guys it's, got uh, the perfect amount of dates. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, for our one year, this. we're going to be giving something away. That's right. Yeah, it's our birthday. A something, something. Mm-hmm. Happy birthday. Our one year, $100 giveaway. We're what? not telling you what it is yet, though. Does that mean if we manage to keep this up for 10 years, it's a $1,000 giveaway? I suppose it could be. Oh, what a nightmare. Wouldn't that be cool? Dude, that would be wild. $1,000 for 1,000 reviews? Or- Years. I'd be almost 70. I'd be Our dead. 1,000th reviewer? Yeah. <laughs> we're not going to get that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Anyway. All right. We're talking systematic theology. Uh, two. ST2. Um, and we are working through the doctrine of man. Uh, last time we talked about the creation of man and what it means to be made in the image of God. I really enjoyed that episode. I did, too. Um, so... As we've been saying, though, with this whole doctrine, there's many implications for life and culture um, when it comes to the doctrine of man or theological anthropology. And this is true for both in the church and also outside the church. It is a topic that generates a lot of emotional debate, it seems, uh, between Christians and non-Christians. And so we've been trying to lay out why it's not just a point of intellectual discussion, but actually one that has real-life consequences. And so we're going to continue to draw those out as we can as these episodes go along. And so today we're going to talk, though, about the various aspects of man. And we're actually only going to spend time in the Old Testament doing this tonight because there's a lot there. Yeah. The, Big topic. Yeah. It's a boring title, but it's a actually a very fascinating topic. Yeah. I, I wish we could come up with the Or did we come up with a cool title? Mm. No. Which aspects of man are at this point? We'll try to we'll try to break. We'll up. find out something yeah. about meat suits. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah, so we're we're going to give a survey of of the old of, of how the Old Testament understands what it means to be human, and we're going to develop this primarily by looking at the language and the terms that the Old Testament authors use, and then next time we'll do the same with the New Testament. Yeah, and and this uh, again is our normal methodology. Yeah. Um, so, when we talk about the aspects of man in the Old Testament, we, we use that term on purpose. In fact, we use it a lot in our preaching. I just used it repeatedly in my sermon Sunday. Um, we're not talking about parts, um, which can be separated 
but instead of a different perspective or way of looking at something, an example would be uh, viewing a statue from different aspects or positions so that you can get a fuller aspect of what it is and what it looks like. So when we're looking at uh, the aspects of man, let me quote from Erickson in his theology. He says, the biblical data is not expressed in compartmentalized terms. Rather, it views man in a holistic manner, and it is considering the makeup of man. We must particular be particular. Oh, I can't say that. with <laughs> I, That's too many R's with L's. This Can you say night. that? No, yeah. I, my speech just impediment. Okay. That's just not particularly. Work. Thank you. Careful <laughs> to ex examine the presuppositions we bring to our study, because there are non-biblical disciplines which are also con uh, concerned about man. The possibility that some of their conceptions might affect our theological construction looms large, whether it be an ancient Greek dualism or modern behavioristic monism, we need to be on our guard against reading a non-biblical worldview into our understanding of scripture. Now he throws out some unique terms there, yeah, but yeah. the idea of a uh, Greek dualism, uh, it just comes out of Plato who argued that there are two realities. You've got the material, the immaterial, and you see it a lot in the writings uh, still today where theologians and pastors will approach various issues from a dualistic perspective. Um, they treat the physical body and the soul and the two distinct realities that therefore need to be addressed in different ways. And that's a huge pastoral theological issue that people should think through. Now, it's not completely wrong, but it 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 is incomplete, and we hope to show you why. Um, there's a faulty anthropology uh, behind it because it sees and therefore approaches a human person as if a human is made up of parts rather than approaching the human holistically. Uh, there are aspects to man, but not parts, and that's key. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. again, I come to you and I look at you and say, well, that's purely a physical issue. No, there, there's a spiritual aspect there too, and and we and it really gets into the issue when we talk about emotional issues and struggles and whatnot. But yeah, yeah, and so the the Old Testament, of course, and next time we'll show the New Testament. But the Old Testament supports that that you need to your approach, your understanding of what a human is holistically, yeah, and not try and break man into constituent parts. Because then you you're going to get it wrong, and then how you minister to men, and how you approach um, even things like sin, um, all of this has implications. Um, In fact, I remember having several conversations early on uh, in my ministry of people, and they would come and say, "Well, you know." If you have a physical problem, you need a doctor. If you have a spiritual problem, you need a, a pastor. But if you have an emotional or mental problem, you need a psychologist. And that, that's exactly. that's yeah. how it looks. Mm -hmm. That's You've broken them into three distinct parts as if you can fiddle with that and not affect something else. And that's not how the scripture, nor God, therefore, right. views it. And that's where we go all the way back to then our bibliology that when you you got to have a strong bibliology if you're convinced that this is the word of god not just some opinions then you have to deal with the fact that that's how god in his word describes man right. and that's what we're driving at right right so let's talk about some introductory issues and again we're going to be working in the old testament with this episode um let me quote something from burkhauer um he said we can never gain a clear understanding of the mystery of man if 
in one way or another, we abstract mere components of the whole man. And again, there it is. Right. It's you can't break him into parts. Um, you also have Wolf, who says this task, um, that is building a, an Old Testament biblical anthropology, demands insights into the premises of the Semitic imagination and mind. In other words, Old Testament, like the Hebrews, right. Semitic people. Concepts like heart, soul, flesh, and spirit are not infrequently interchangeable in Hebrew poetry. In poetic parallelism, they can be used as terms for the whole man, almost like pronouns. You see that, for instance, in Psalm 84 too. This has been well characterized as the stereometric of expression. There's a phrase for you. Um, stereometric thinking thus simultaneously presupposes a synopsis of the members and organs of the human body with their capacities and functions. It is synthetic thinking. He's saying a lot of words, it sounds technical, but it's the idea of how when you have Old Testament writers speak of the heart or the kidneys or the stomach, he's referencing these different aspects of man, but he's speaking of the whole being of, of what it means to be human. Right, and, and he referenced the par poetic par parallelism, and that, sh that is very helpful because both lines of the parallel uh, will reference different yeah. aspects of man, and the point is he's not saying one aspect yeah. and then here's a different part, but they're actually one and the same. It's like, all like viewing my, man. my soul is weary and my heart is faint. Yeah, he's not talking about right. your soul and your heart. He's just discussing that in material aspect of man. Yeah. And then one final quote by Monk from the biblical meaning of man. He says, thus man is seen in the Bible as a whole. Man divided against himself is straight Platonism. It is never the thought of revelation, meaning scripture. And so there again, he's just um, affirming that man, if you're to understand him rightly, must be approached holistically because that's how the Bible speaks of man. Well, right there though, just quoting those three theologians, you already can see how the church in America really has bought into a platonic thinking. Yeah, totally and they, worldly. Yeah, and, and they don't mean to, but they end up going astray in so many rationales. Um, and it's like, nope, 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 but mm -hmm. go ahead. Well, let me uh, quote a little bit out of the New Testament anthropology as well, even though we're only dealing with Old Testament right now. Yeah. Um, this one is coming from, oh, this is a long one, by Guthrie. Uh, the New Testament view of man must be deduced from a wide range of apparently disparate material. In fact, the New Testament Testament does not set out in so many words what man is. It does not supply a psychological account. There is little support for an analytical approach to man's nature. Of all the New Testament writers, Paul gives the fullest expression of an Old Testament doctrine of man. And the main ideas which Paul uses to describe various aspects of man are soul, spirit, flesh, body, heart, and mind. To those may be added the important concept of conscience and the characteristically Pauline idea of the inner man. The foregoing evidence has demonstrated the wide variety of Paul's terms for aspects of man and the impossibility, that's important, the impossibility of constructing a consistent psychology. Indeed, psychology is a wrong word to use, since Paul is so strongly influenced by the Hebrew idea of the whole man that Greek notions of separate functions have only a minimum impact on his Paul's thinking. So, in other words, psychology has very little place in his thinking. You cannot take a psychological approach to 
the understanding of what is meant to be human. Instead, the main aspects of Paul's thinking when it comes to man are physical and spiritual, not psychological. And this is huge if you let it settle into your thinking. Yeah, yeah. Paul, um, here's a quote from Robinson. Um, he says, Paul, a Hebrew of Hebrews, is primarily and characteristically Hebrew in his anthropology. And even where his ideas come nearest to a Greek form um, or are clothed in a Greek terminology, they are a legitimate outcome of Old Testament conceptions. Um, in other words, Paul's construction of what it means to be human, again, is radically biblical and rooted out of the Old Testament and has little to do with secular notions or philosophies of humanity. Um, th this is the presupposition that we're going to be working with as well. Um, we're, we're interested in what the Bible calls man, not with how we can make sense of what the Bible is saying man is, but in light of what modern science or philosophy or even secular anthropology uh, has to say about man. Yeah, We're not bringing that to bear on the Bible. Rather, we're going to take Paul's approach and what does the Bible say? Yeah, and apply it against these secular right. ideas. Yeah. Um, and and when I, I think it's worth noting to you if you're listening and you're saying, okay, well, so Paul is just borrowing from the Old Testament because he's a Hebrew. Yes, but the Old Testament is the Word of God, and therefore it's God's yeah. vision and perspective of man whom he made. So yeah. it's not just him saying, well, he's just borrowing from a different worldview. No, he's coming from the Scripture, mm -hmm. and, and that's what's informing him. And, and, and therefore, we would argue that's what must inform us as yeah. Christians. Yeah, and he was well-educated in Greek thought as yeah. well. So it's not like he's ignorant of secular approaches to understanding. Absolutely. Man. All right, so with that, we'll get into the key terms. Um, in the Old Testament terminology, the first one is basar. Um, it's connected to the New Testament word sarks. Um, it means flesh in the sense of meaning meat. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Hence, we have meat suits. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think we should title it meat suits? I don't know. <laughs> um, Anyhow, it's so it's it's talking about the flesh. Yeah. Um, so it, it it's used in uh, Genesis two twenty one of the meat or the flesh of man, and in Exodus twenty one twenty eight of the animal. So it it's got that basic sense, and then it goes into more of a body uh, in the more extended sense, referring to the physical aspect of humans. It's the idea that that part of what means to it means to be human is that there is a physical material uh, to you. There's right. something that makes up your body. Yeah. Um, and so in Psalm 109, 24, he says, my flesh uh, has grown lean without fatness. So it's, you've lost weight. Yeah. Um, but there's a physical aspect. Right, That's right. The point. Yeah. Um, it can refer to the blood or the a marital relationship, so you're yeah. one flesh. Right. Um, it can refer indirectly to another aspect of humanity. And this is where it can cut now it's important because it begins to move beyond just meat or the the, <laughs> uh, the mere physical aspect and, yeah, yeah. and so it's the most significant sense of the term and it's actually critical for you to understand that this is what is usually meant when the word is used so this is the most important and most common way it's used um, and here is where you can begin to see that holistic understanding of man in the bible so in like Psalm 63, 1, it refers to that inner attitude of man. He uses the word flesh, but it's not talking about your meat. It's right, talking right. about an inner attitude. Yeah. Um, 
It also refers to that innate, and here's what's really important, the innate frailty of impotence of, of humanity in places like Psalm 6.3 or Second Chronicles 32.8. We have some others there. Um, yeah, so, so bound up with the, 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 the meat is weakness, yes. in other words. And, and if you can take away that, you, you've got it. Um, all flesh is also used as an idiom to speak of the human race. Um, but when we deal with it from an anthropological significance of Basar, it is consistently used to describe man in a state of uh, weakness and yeah, inability. Yeah. So, so the issue here is, is what we see a lot of in many theologies, especially when it comes to the idea of, as we were talking earlier, trying to explain things like sin. Um, it's, it's Greek dualism, plain and simple. Uh, this was very prominent in the early church and gave rise to the monastic movements. Paul dealt with early aspects of that. In fact, in Colossians 2, uh, chap, uh, verse right. 20 through 23. Um, and I wish I could quote that one. Um, the it, Interesting though, the book of First John well, it's is- a, It's the idea that by basically- Yeah, and, and that somehow you can- uh, harshly treat your body and that that's going to deal with right. sin. But in fact, he says it has no value against the flesh and using the word sarks, which is a New Testament term for bizarre. Yeah, that why do you submit yourself to decrees as do not handle, do not taste, right. do not touch. Um, and then in First John, also his writing has, um, it's filled with indications that this also was a problem to those to whom he was writing. Um, you know, that whole idea that um, you can be doing one thing physically, like like hating your brother, withholding goods, you know, food, clothing, these kinds of things, and yet spiritually you're fine. Right. Um, he, he makes no separation or distinction there. And, and by the way, that, what you just described there is something that's massive in the American Christian world today is that you, you somehow think spiritually I'm fine, and yet your hand is busy doing all sorts of evil. Your eyes are gazing upon things. Your tongue is saying things. Um, yeah. And Paul, John, there, and Paul would just simply say, no, they're one and the same. That is merely a reflection of a spiritual issue. Right, yeah. Well, just why he says you can't love in word only, but you must love in word and yep. deed. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I mean, with this whole asceticism stu stuff or monastic things, you know, Christians also, they have in past, but even in our day, they can fall into that error of simply trying to deny their physical body something in an effort to you know, root out the sin that's there, which of course is missing the entire point. Um, the the flesh there that that is sinful and fallen is not resident in those sort of physical cells of a human body. Right. Um, and that's the point to understand. Um, do you want to do the quote by... Yeah, yeah. So, Dyerness, uh, he, his book, uh, Themes in Old Testament Theology, um, he says, significantly, there is no indication that the flesh, meaning the actual physical body, as such is evil or even a source of evil. But a person as flesh is what recognizes weak and lacking in strength, which is exactly what we were just saying, mm -hmm. Basar is. So when you hear that your flesh is weak, it's not talking about your muscles. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's talking about that innate humanness that you have as a sinful person. Yeah. And Paul will build on that really huge with the word sarks. Yeah. And we'll talk about that next time. But the, uh, then um, in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, the antith 
antithesis, oh man, my <laughs> mouth is not working, of flesh and spirit is found occasionally in the Old Testament. It is not, however, there, however the antithesis of two principles, but of man's weakness and God's strength. Um, but an internal dualism is never found in the Old Testament and would deny the very foundation of Old Testament theology. Yeah, it, that's such an important one, and we'll get that into this too with the next term, nefesh, but it's the idea that then what it means to be flesh is it's an indication simply that you are not God, and that's the distinction. Um, but we'll get into this in New Testament too, but this is what makes it so profound that God then takes on flesh. Yes. He takes on that weakness and, and can therefore why he how he can redeem us to himself and sympathize with us and those kinds of things. Um, but then the next term is nefesh, um, and this one's usually connected with the New Testament term psuche. Um, and the meaning of this term, um, and we're gonna draw this from Burton's Spirit, Soul, and Flesh. Um, but the, the term here refers to the soul or the seat of appetite and emotion um, and things like that um, with no implication of a separate entity or the possibility of a separate existence. Do you think they're getting that we're really trying to keep <laughs> these aspects together? Well, hopefully, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so you'll, you'll see this term though used um, in a myriad of ways. It's used first to refer to the seat of uh, of physical appetites, of, of health, of vigor. You'll see that in Job 33, Proverbs 630. Um, it's used to refer also to the seat of emotions and all different kinds of emotions. So, you know, desire, courage, hope, fear, love, sorrow, hate, discouragement, vengeance even, um, or or just by metonymy, the emotions themselves. Um, Job 30, 25, Psalm 86, 4, um, you'll also see it used to speak with reference to the moral action of a person, especially when joined with the language of heart. You'll see that in Genesis 49, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. And this is actually the most important aspect of the term when it comes to studying anthropological right. issues, um, that, that moral action of a person. Um, and then it's also used to speak of, of the seed of mentality, um, you'll see that in Esther 4, Psalm 139 and verse 14, the, the mind, in other words. Um, the, the point is that nefesh is used to speak of, of the soup from which physical, emotional, moral, and emotional um, realities flow. Um, it, it makes no distinction between physical and spiritual, but it's a term that shows how the Old Testament writers were understanding man, again, to be holistic, and that's the point to understand. They refuse to make any kind of distinction between um, this, the, the soul and or the spiritual and, and the physical. And you, we're going to see this with all of these terms, but nefesh certainly brings it out. Yeah. So just like Basar is emphasizing the creaturely weakness, um, innate weakness, here nefesh is emphasizing that moral aspect uh, and the moral actions that we're going to do. Those are your takeaways from this, but it's used in multiple ways. Uh, nefesh is also used in a very broad sense to speak of a living being. So as simple as that, a being that possesses life, but as distinguished from a inanimate, inanimate object. Yeah. Uh, so the phrase nefesh hayah, uh, living being, is a general term for any creature that has life. Most commonly, though, it's applying to man. Yeah. So when we deal with the anthropological significance of nefesh, 
the term is primarily used to speak of the creatureliness of the person. Yeah. So Wolf, again, in his anthropology, uh, today we are coming to the conclusion that it is only in a very few passages that the translation soul co- corresponds to the meaning nefesh. Nefesh is designed to be seen together with a whole form of man and especially with his breath. Moreover, man does not have nefesh, rather he is nefesh. Uh, indeed, he lives as nefesh. That's really yeah. well put together right there. And again, it's important because it's not saying you have a nefesh, you have a soul. It's just you are That's nefesh. what you are. Again, this is this holistic idea. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so in older theologies, it was common to see the term as being connected with the soul of man alone. It's now being seen that the biblical data simply doesn't support that. It's a term that refers to the holistic person and is a reference to the spring from which a creature has its creatureliness. I like that. Um, In short, you could understand it as a reference to that which separates man from God. Yeah. Um, And then the next term is ruach, um, usually connected with the New Testament term pneuma. um, And... So let me give you some of the meanings here, and we're getting this from the Theological Workbook of the Old Testament. Um, It'll say on the meaning of ruach, it's it's the idea of air and motion or the four winds. Um, In living beings, the ruach is is their breath, whether of animals, men, or both. You see that in Genesis 7, 15, Isaiah 42, 5. Um, Ultimately, uh, they'll say in the workbook, breath signifies activity in life. Um, a person's spirit is said to be consumed, for instance, when he is sick or faint in Job 17. Um, in God's hand is the breath or the ruach of all mankind, Job 12, 10, Isaiah 42. Um, and so in light of that, the, the unique feature of, of human life, and this is important, the unique feature of human life is not the physical, but the spiritual, um, the, the, the mental or that personal disposition. Um, and, and that is something that is divinely given to a person. Um, so we talked about this earlier today. You can have all the physical components of a person there, but that doesn't necessitate life. And I was thinking about the fact, you know, like let's say somebody has a heart issue, like their valve goes bad on them or something, and they die. Um, you can go back in there and fix the valve, and all the parts will be there physically, you can't just reinsert life. Yeah. I mean, you can't just do that. That's something that's divinely given. That's that breath. That's that ruach that God gives and animates the physical. I'll never forget the first time as a cop, a person died in front of me. And, you know, you're looking at them and they're looking at you, which is not pleasant. And they're looking at you and you know it's not happening and and there's nothing you can do and but then there's just this moment where they're not there anymore it's it's i don't know how to describe it any more than that but it was weird Mm -hmm. it was just weird it's because i'd never seen it before and it's like you were alive and (laughs) you're not but the but nothing physically has changed at all not not one thing but they're gone Mm -hmm. and um very strange yeah yeah so the the significance um, anthropologically of this term ruach is that um, there is what is called by some a theoanthropological aspect to this term. Boy, we're using some big words here. Um, <laughs> th- yeah, this simply means that when considering the spirit of man, we need to see it in relation to the work of God. That's the point. 
Um, in other words, when the Bible uses this term in relation to man, it's often used of our relationship to God. There is that inextricable connection between man and his creator. Um, he holds our life in his very hands. And that's the point, Yeah. right? So he's the one that uh, causes the life. He holds the life in his hands. Um, and, and then that gets into a whole idea of our, our trusting ourselves to, to his goodness and his, his sufficiency to keep our life. Uh, then the next word is lab. Um, it's usually connected with the New Testament term, uh, cardia, uh, cardia, I'm sorry, um, heart is all it means. The concrete meaning of lab is referred to, referred to the internal organ and is, uh, to, and it's, uh, and to the analogous physical locations. I'm sorry, I'm reading from the theological um, Old Testament. I can't, what, I, the abbreviation is wrong. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> that's not right. Theological word book of the... I'm yeah. testing you here. I want to oh, see, like, see the struggle. You know? Wow. I'm like, I've never seen that acronym <laughs> in my life. <laughs> All right. So the theological word book of the Old Testament. Thank you for fixing that. <laughs> um and to the analogous physical locations of the heart. Um, however, in its abstract meaning, heart becomes the richest biblical term for the totality of the man's inner or immaterial nature. Um, in biblical literature, it is the most frequently used term for man's immaterial personality functions, as well as the most inclusive term for them, since in the Bible, virtually every immaterial uh, function of man is attributed to the heart. So it's a very key term. Yeah. Um, Sounds like the sound of a heart. Yep. Yeah. Which is why, and again, because it's the immaterial, this is now why um, we can speak of things like God's heart. Like David was a man after God's own heart, because now you're in something much more profound than just physical. A, a blood, blood pumping organ. Right, right. Yeah. 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 Uh, so it's rarely used to refer to the physical organ. Um, by far, the majority of the uses of lab is uh, refer either to the inner or immaterial nature in general, or to the emotion or thought or will. Uh, so it gets used in a ton of different ways. Um, so it expresses a totality of man's nature and character, both inner and outer. You can see that in like First Kings eight twenty three or Psalm nine one. Uh, it speaks of the emotion in First Samuel two one. Um, it speaks of the desire or longings of a person in Psalm 21.2. It speaks to the thought functions, decision-making, and re reasoning aspects of a person in Genesis 6.5 and others. It speaks of a person's wisdom and understanding in 1 Kings 3.12. And it's used to talk about the seat of a person's will in Judges 9.3. And it also refers to a person's conscience in 1 Samuel 25.4. Now, just that list alone, if you then develop a sound homardiology doctrine of sin yeah. that tells you about the heart, yeah. Yeah. You, you realize you're in trouble. Yeah. Because it, it is the essence of what you are. At yeah. that, that, uh, my old professor described it as just the mission control center. Mm -hmm. um, so... Do you want to do um, this part? Yeah, sure. So the the anthropological significance of this term lave then is um, it's it's most commonly referring to the innermost being of a man. And again, it, you said it, it's that mission control center of of a man. This is 
something that's very true in Hebrew thought um, when it comes to heart. You know, again, don't just think of that organ. You got to think of the entire being of a person. The heart is the symbol for the focus of life, um, as Paine says in his theology. Um, the heart is the place from which our emotions and decisions and judgments and desires and hopes and dreams, religious and even moral conduct, conduct all flow. Um, so it's a very important word, in other words. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Get it right and you're going to be right more than wrong in your understanding of man, once you understand that. Yeah. If yeah. that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why not? Um, <laughs> you want to just hit these other terms quick? Yeah. Oh, then, then there's just real quick, other terms that get used. Um, literally, it talks about the kidneys, the bowels, the bones. Um, but again, these are all used to speak of aspects of man in, in unique ways. Um, and we, we have passages that they can look at in the show notes that they want. Um, these are all terms the Hebrews used when they wanted to say what we mean when we'll say something like, I have a gut feeling or I feel it in my bones. So it's it's a transcultural con- kind of concept. We understand what it means, but when you're translating the first time, you're like, right. That says kidneys. <laughs> I remember uh, the, the the term for patient uh, or long suffering is long, long of nose. nose. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, I'm like, huh. Um, <laughs> yeah, I made sense of them. Yeah. So, so this is um, this is the Old Testament survey of the biblical terms that are used when it, when the Old Testament writers want to talk about man. Um, but the key point with this whole episode just in case you didn't get it, <laughs> is is to understand that we will err if we try to understand man as having constituent parts. Um, rather, we must understand man holistically. That's how he must be approached. That's how he must be studied. And that's how he must be dealt with. He has multiple aspects and they're all going to be interrelated. Um, and so this is where much theology, pastoring, modern approaches to dealing with the problems of man go wrong. Uh, much of it begins with a faulty approach, first and foremost, to what man even is. Um, if, if you understand man as somehow having parts, then then you're going to have to develop approaches to deal with each of those parts. Um, but if you understand man holistically, then you have to approach him holistically. And as we were talking in the beginning, this is where you then can begin to understand the implications now for things like counseling um, and various approaches to ministry. If, if pastors are convinced that man is made up of parts, well, then you're going to have to export him to the, quote, professionals to deal with things like the psyche, for instance, right? Um, and the emotions and those kinds of things. Um, but um, we're going to develop this a little bit more. There's a lot to talk about here, um, but sufficient for now. Um, next time we'll talk about New Testament authors and how they speak about the nature of man. Um, But until then, make sure to tune in, join the conversation. Let us know what you think about the aspects of man. And don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, review, and tell your friends.